listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel and this is a podcast in which we talk about big issues affecting the electorate of Goldstein and also the broader Australian community. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I sit, that is the Boonarung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. Anjali Sharma is an Australian climate activist who at the age of 16 was the lead litigant in a class action in the Australian Federal Court. Anjali, along with seven other Australian teenagers, filed a lawsuit against Federal Environment Minister Susan Lay, seeking to halt the approval given to the Whitehaven Coal Mines Vickery Extension Project in New South Wales, arguing that the Environment Minister had a duty of care to avoid causing injury to young people while exercising her powers. Although the ruling didn't pass an order against the expansion of the coal project, the judgment, known as the Sharma decision, was hailed as a big win for the teen activists. In the last few weeks, however, the Federal Court has overturned the duty of care ruling, finding that the Minister does not have a legal duty of care, at least, to young people. So where to from here? Thanks for joining us, Sanjali. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Lovely to see you and hear you. Now, it takes a lot of bravery to stand up for your beliefs in court, particularly at such a young age. How are you? How, how, how has the process been? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a very crazy thing to do and it's a very crazy thing to reconcile the fact that I'm still at school, I'm you know, doing my legal studies and my history classes while also being the lead litigant in the federal court. But to me, it's always been less of a choice and more of a responsibility. Um, I've seen the first-hand impacts of the climate crisis on my community, my family from where I come from in India. And to me, it's just been an essential need, in my opinion, that we live in a place, we live in a country where there's so much privilege, so many avenues where you can pursue a case like this, you can take to the streets, you can take to court, all stuff you can't do in India. So I've always wanted to use this privilege for for those people, for my loved ones, for my family, and which is why I took on this court case and um, it's been an amazing experience. Mm. So tell me more about your motivation. I, I read that you were very environmentally aware from a young age and you talked about seeing or experiencing or being aware of environmental impact on people that you know. What sorts of things and how did your motivation develop? Yeah, so like I said, I come from India, which is an equatorial country. It's, you know, arguably a lot more worse off than Australia when it comes to access to resources, to funding, to the ability to rebuild after natural disasters. You know, we've seen natural disasters rip through Australia, um, you know, the floods in Lismore, the fires in New South Wales. But the thing is that we always have the capacity to rebuild um, in some way or another. We'll get the money, whether it's through GoFundMes, through government grants, and the communities will always be put back together, which is something that simply does not happen in India. Um, you know, there are places that are still that still have contaminated water supplies from the 2017 floods in Delhi, which contaminated their water supplies and they haven't been able to fix that yet. There's places that have on and off electricity because of some natural disaster or another that they just simply don't have the capacity to rebuild from. 
there's climate change related diseases there that are so prevalent. Um, in 2018, I lost a cousin to jaundice and he was an adult. Um, jaundice mainly affects babies. And um, I was doing research for an English oral a month ago and I found out in just a shocking revelation that jaundice is actually exacerbated by climate change. And it's stuff like this that really catalyzes your motivation, your drive to, to put the spotlight on these communities because we don't often hear about this. We don't often talk about this and it needs we talked about more so so was there one moment when the penny sort of dropped for you and you thought okay I have to do something or was it a sort of cumulative process of motivation yeah I can't pinpoint a single moment honestly you never you never link natural disasters like that to climate change because it's always about you know survival first it's always about you know get them the money get them the safety you know send anything that you can across make sure everyone's all okay but having the access to the education system that I had here. Um, in year five and year six, all you learn about this stuff is the importance of recycling and the importance of the bees in the ecosystem. But I was that kid who did, you know, the deep dives into it. I went down the YouTube spiral, um, you know, looking at National Geographic, Al Jazeera, all those crazy um, videos that told me about 1.5 degrees and the melting of the ice caps and all of that. And then... The moment where I really got involved in climate action was the first time that I went to a school strike for climate meeting. And it was honestly the first time I've been in a room with people who were that passionate and informed about um, what's happening to the world, which is something that I had never experienced from those around me. And I honestly, it strengthened my resolve to stay in spaces like that and find more spaces like that and create more spaces like that to get those around me also talking about what's going on because that's when you when you talk about what's going on that's how you pressure the government into direct action Mm. and what's your sense of the attitude of your peers on this issue do you have to talk them into caring or do you think that in general uh, they are aware of what's going on everyone knows about what's going on there's not a single person that I mean you know there will always be people but Rarely you'll find someone who has no idea what climate change is or who has no idea what uh, what's happening to the world, whether it comes to the war in Ukraine, whether it comes to poverty, any of that. Uh, we live in a society that is so hyper-connected where you can open your phone and the first thing you see on your Instagram timeline is a post from the Daily Oz saying that the government has given $50 million to fracking in the Bidaloo Basin. Everyone knows about this stuff and everyone knows that something has to be done and everyone's concerned about it. And, you know, it's it almost becomes a joke in our, um, you know, in our generation where, oh, we're all going to die from climate change anyways. The thing is, though, that even though we're also aware about it, there's often a sort of cynicism among our generation where you feel so, like, you feel hopeless. You feel like there's nothing that you can do personally. Sure, you can go to strikes. Sure, you can, you know, learn more about this stuff, but you don't actually see any impact being made um which is something that this case has really changed for me it's the first time I've honestly felt like my voice has been heard in the wider Australian society it's the first time I felt like politicians have sat up and taken notice sure they've taken notice of the school strikes but it's been on a like a real surface level um Mm. and that's why I feel like this case has really made waves yeah so let's talk about the case I I guess there were various options for you to tackle. Why did you decide to tackle this Whitehaven coal project specifically? This case has kind of been in the works for two years. Um, Our lawyers have been developing the case theory for 
for ages and, you know, they decided to tackle it um, not in terms of environmental law, but in terms of like common law, um, a duty of care. It just so happened, I guess, that the um, Vicar Extension Project was the one that came along at the point where this case was ready to launch. And the fact that the Vicar Extension Project will release an extra 100 million tonnes of carbon dioxide into, into the atmosphere certainly helped that case. Um, but the fact of the matter is that every day we're seeing um, new coal-fired power stations and new gas pipelines approved. And, um, you know, we decided to target this one, but the problem doesn't lie with one individual mine or one individual um, gas pipeline. The problem is the the wider scope of it and the fact that we're not transitioning to renewables fast enough. Mm. And what's it been like being part of that legal process? What what have you learnt from that? So much. I've learnt I've had an insight into the intrinsics of the of the Australian legal system. Um, it's been a goal of mine even since before I began to pursue this case to work in environmental law or human rights law. And so in a way, this case has been just incredible work experience. But apart from that, you know, apart from having being exposed to pages and pages of submissions and judgments and legal jargon and the most amazing lawyers in the world, it's also been really really difficult like I said to reconcile the fact that I am also in year 12 and I'm also just you know at the very beginning of what I hope is a very long journey in environmental law I'm still learning about the legal system um I have a legal stack later on today actually in period four Mm -hmm. um I get friends from other schools texting me being like oh my gosh you're my case study in my legal class or um you know my principal talked about you in fact I went to a meeting with my principal yesterday and he was in Canberra for a larger principals conference he told me that he had four or five principals from other schools come up and be like oh the case is amazing so the fact that it's made ways while I feel like I'm still such a small insignificant part of society who will literally exist for a nanosecond um that's been really crazy but it's just placed the emphasis on the fact that everyone can make change if you told me that I was going to be a lead litigant in the federal court three years ago I I don't know what I would have done but the fact remains that everyone has everyone has the power to push a change in their daily lives if they are that passionate yeah. And how do you think that's then affected other young people around you? It, it, you said, you know, obviously many people are aware of it and they're using it in their studies and such, but do you think also that it, it might trigger some of those people to step into taking action in some way? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, I've gotten messages from heaps of people my age being like, you know, this has inspired me. This is this has driven me to, um, you know, meet with my local politician or volunteer for my local politician. In fact, I have a few friends volunteering for you in Goldstein. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it's all about, you know, getting people our age to realise that we're the ones who will have to live with the impacts of what happens in Parliament right now for longer than anyone else. Um, and that that means that we don't have time to wait until the world decides to hear our voices and until the world gives us a vote and says, yeah, sure, you know, tick off whatever you want in the ballot paper now. Um, we don't have time to wait for that. We have to push for direct action now. Um, and I've seen that in my, you know, I've seen that in my friend circle where um, people come up to me and they ask about the case unprompted and where people, um, they've all signed up to the mailing list of um, updates on the case and everyone's aware about it and people are starting to want to take more action, which is exactly what we need. Now, the case has been a bit of a roller coaster 
obviously, and the overturning of the original duty of care judgment, I I assume, was a bit a big blow. How did you respond to that, and how do you work through that reversal of what was a big victory? The whole day, you know, I flew up to Sydney for the federal court hearing, and the whole day just felt like an absolute fever dream because you never think about the larger scope of things especially I think leading a a case at this age you never think about the fact that you know this duty of care is essentially law reform and it changes the guidelines of what is acceptable for politicians for years to come so honestly for me I just yeah I woke up 4 30 in the morning flying to Sydney I um I met the litigants who I've never met before I've been you know we've been really good friends but I've never met them before and we were just we were messing around we were kids being kids and then suddenly we're all huddled around this laptop because the judgment's happening and oh my gosh he's gonna say it he's gonna say it and then he said it um you know Justice Beach I think it was said that the court has unanimously decided not to impose this duty and it was just you felt all the hearts in the room at that point just break because like I said, this case has been in the works for years and years and years. And I've seen lawyers who I look up to endlessly and who are doing just amazing work, give their, give everything to this case and establishing this duty of care. And I don't know if any of us actually ever believed it was going to happen, but, you know, in May, 2021, it did happen. And we were, we were just so grateful to be part of this law reform process and to have that overturned was a real blow but seeing the outpour of support from the community you know seeing the amount of media that has jumped onto this case and um held the government to account and seeing the amount of people who were so angry about the fact that Susan Lee decided to appeal the judgment in the first place let alone the fact that she won it shows you that we're building so much momentum. You know, this is literally, we're months out from a federal election and this can't be good for the Liberal Party, the fact that they've won the right to what, not have a duty of care to children. Um, We're building to a shift definitely and, you know, we need it sooner rather than later. What was your read of the judgment? You know, in simple terms, does it, it it sort of looks like um, financial imperative is more important than your future. Yeah, and it, it sucks when you put it like that. In fact, it's always felt like, you know, the, it's us against the state because it has been such a novel case. There's, you know, there's no direct precedent to, to I guess, base this on. And um, having that judgment from the federal court that said that, you know, courts shouldn't play a part in policymaking and that this is, should be left up to the politicians and, um, you know, all that stuff about financial imperative. It's been a real, it's been a real blow. We as young people have such a different outlook on the world to those who made this judgment. You know, we're the ones, like I said, who will have to live with the impacts of this judgment and the governing that we're seeing in Canberra right now for decades. So it's been real disheartening, especially for us who are at the core of the case. But again, it's the support that's gotten us through. It's the it's the anger that it's evoked from the community. Like it's been surreal. And I long for the day where one day financial imperative isn't what is put above the futures of children. Well, yeah, and even with the verdict in this case, experts, the business, the corporate world, uh, and the vast majority of Australians are now on board with the switch to renewable energy. What what do you think, in your mind, is at the core of the the government's stall 
on this issue? It's, it's lack of capacity to move forward more quickly, as you say. It's hard to say. I mean, it's really hard to justify their actions in any way because, you know, you come at it from an economic point of view and still we have economists and, you know, people in that industry saying that this, is, this can be seen as an economic opportunity. Um, you know, you come at it from a social justice point of view and there's just no denying that climate action is what we need to ensure a safe future and, you know, a safe future for those who don't live in Australia, for those who do live in Australia. I just don't know which point of view you can use to justify the lack of climate action. We're up against an international backdrop where um, the UK and US are promoting stronger climate targets than Australia and the fact that, you know, at the last COP, we were really like the the joke of the developed world. We were, in this COP, Angus Taylor promised to fly to COP and use it to promote fossil fuels. Like, what kind of country does that? We're the only ones dragging our feet now and I I don't know how to justify it. I don't know what the what the justification is and, you know, I wish I could, you know, see it from their point of view because I feel like it would be much easier to accept the decision and it would be, yeah, okay, sure, there's a strong economic argument or there's a strong strong argument from some, some sense, but I don't see it. Mm. One of the justifications has been that Australia shouldn't accelerate into renewable energy and reducing its emissions if other countries aren't also keeping up. India is one that's been pointed to repeatedly by the Australian government in that regard. What what would you say to that argument? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, India, China, all those countries that, uh, you know, really hold the bulk of the emissions. But the fact of the matter is that Australia built its economy long before like India and China entered like you know the top end of the global economy while China was still establishing its economy firmly on fossil fuels and same with India Australia had like Australia UK US had all like established economic dominance long before that so we've had a much larger window to divest to listen to the science and to accept that sure we established our economy on exports of coal and you know we're one of the largest exporters and all of that but you know it's time to move on like the science is showing it the economists are saying it um you know the people are demanding it um sure china isn't india isn't um which is actually not true to say too because china too is um releasing plans but we've had a much larger larger window we have a lot more opportunity in that area australia is one of the sunniest windiest countries you know it's such a cliche but it's true um and that's really that's really my take on that so are you voting in this election um so the election could potentially be 7 14th or 21st may at this point i turn 18 on the 18th of may so i've got a three-day window there for me it's most likely i won't but next election i guess three years down the track or whenever what do you say to first-time voters as far as the election is concerned and what they should keep front of mind on election day? Do your own research. Like, the media right now is so, like, so biased and, you know, learn about the intrinsics of, um, of preferential voting and know that if you vote Greens, your preferences won't go to Liberal unless you want them to go to Liberal. Like, you're in control of your preferences. Learn more about the 
the system of voting in Australia because there's so much misinformation. Know the issues that are core to your heart, you know, whether that's climate, whether that's integrity, whether that's human rights, and then vote on those issues. Don't vote based on what what the media tells you to or um, don't play into this huge like two-party narrative that the media promotes whether whether it's either liberal, Labour or it's Liberal. Um, you know we've seen a wave of climate 200 independence and the Greens are making major gains in seats like McNamara. We have no time, we have no time for people to to vote the Liberals in again. That's pretty much it. And Jali Sharma, it's been great to talk with you and we'll look forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you so much. Thank you and best of luck in this election. Thank you. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214, Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria.